Right. Uh, thank you very much uh, for coming um, on this May day uh, in the middle or the, just before the exam period. So those students here are taking notes and I shall see what, what you've told them crop up in their exam papers in a couple of months. My name is uh, Toby Dodge. I am the Kuwait Professor and the Director of the Middle East Centre here at London School of Economics. Um, more importantly, sitting next to me is uh, an old friend and colleague, Mark Fitzpatrick, who is the Director of Non-Proliferation and the Disarmament Programme at the International Institute for Strategic Studies, just down the road. I think it's fair to say uh, that Mark has been, since arriving at the IISS, has been a powerhouse of work on non-proliferation across globally and has also, I think, very admirably created around him a, a young staff of um, very prolific and also well-trained and encouraged and directed uh, people working on non-proliferation. I think uh, more importantly, uh, before he joined the IISS in 2005, he had a 26-year career in the U.S. Department of State where for the previous 10 years he focused on non-proliferation issues. So this is a, a long-winded way of saying we, we are sitting next to a man who knows what he's talking about. Um, Mark will speak for half an hour to 40 minutes. We'll then have questions. Um, if you want to tweet about this event, I, I'm not, don't, not quite sure what that is, but it's, the hashtag is um, LSC Fitzpatrick. Uh, so, and then there'll be questions and, after, uh, questions and answers after he's spoken. So, Mark, without further ado. Well, thanks very much, Toby, for the kind introduction, and thank you for giving me uh, the place and time to talk about the impending Iran deal, uh, why I think it's a, a good deal. I'll explain that. It's a, it's a luxury to have 30 or 40 minutes to, uh, to explain it. I was so frustrated last night. I was trying to do it in 140 characters. And it just, I, I was in this argument with, it didn't help that my antagonist uh, was uh, stone-headed ignoramus, and he just didn't get it. Uh, he kept insisting uh, that uh, conceding enrichment is to concede the bomb, that if you allow Iran any enrichment at all, that means you're allowing them to have a, a, an atomic bomb. Well, if that's your premise, that's, and you're not going to uh, listen to any uh, rationality. Um, frankly, I, I, I forgot that, that old Twitter rule of, you know, never get into an exchange with a troll. And, uh, but he was a former colleague, so I, I kind of... <laughs> not, not double I double S, uh, in another life. The, um, the deal that, was, uh, that we... we, we uh, heard about on the 2nd of, of April uh, was better than I thought it was going to be. It was much more detailed than I had expected at that stage. The four-page um, parameters document uh, put out by the U.S. government had so many uh, rich details of, uh, of why, uh, if you look, looked at that, why it was a good deal. Now, that uh, parameters document, Iran challenged and said, well, it wasn't correct. It, it wasn't correct to the extent that it wasn't complete. Um, what happens in, agree in an agreement like this is both sides uh, spin it how they want to spin it. And it would have been improper for the U.S. government to put anything that was false in those four pages of parameters. But they didn't put some of the 
points in there that Iran would have bragged about if Iran had uh, put out its own parameters document. The deal uh, that is uh, before us does what the West had wanted it to do. It met their objective of blocking all of Iran's uh, possible paths to a nuclear weapon. By blocking, I don't mean completely um, uh, making it impossible, but impeding it uh, to the point where it would, it would not be uh, practical or wise uh, for Iran to follow any of these potential paths. The path of using the declared facility at Natanz, the facility that uh, Iran uh, started up back in uh, 2000, early, uh, early part of this century, and uh, where they uh, want to install 50,000 centrifuges, where they now have 19,000 installed, um, they've agreed to uh, reduce that number to 5,000 uh, or so. And this um, makes it impossible for Iran to use that facility to produce uh, weapons worth of highly enriched uranium in uh, less than a year's time for the uh, duration of, of this deal. That's not bad. Uh, Twelve months is twice as long as I had thought would be necessary. To uh, I thought six months would really be necessary because what you want to do is uh, have time to discover a breakout, and that can be done very, very quickly. Then time to pursue a diplomatic solution, and you can take as much time as you want to pursue a diplomatic solution, but you need a couple months. And then uh, time to employ other means of stopping it. And military options can be put in place uh, very quickly. So I think six months would be a minimum time. But anyway, they got 12 months, so twice as good as I thought it uh, might be. Secondly, the facility at Fordo, the one that's buried so far underground that uh, unless you have uh, American um, big bunker busters, you couldn't uh, uh, destroy it. Uh, that uh, facility will not be enriching uranium. Now, we'll have uh, 1,000 centrifuges left in it, and I'll explain why in a minute uh, that was important to Iran to have those centrifuges remain there. But if it's not going to be re uh, producing uh, enriched uranium, it can't uh, produce uh, highly enriched uranium for a weapon. The centrifuges are going to be used for some other kind of research to produce medical isotopes or something, and I think they're going to be um, fed with material that has uh, heavy metal in it, heavy metal that would contaminate the centrifuges uh, such that they couldn't be then used to produce enriched uranium. So even though there's centrifuges there, I, I think they will be dealt with in a way that we don't have to worry about them. But let's wait and see what the final deal shows. Third path is plutonium pathway, for which uh, it appeared that Iran was going to be um, using potentially using the Iraq research reactor that would have been able to produce eight kilograms of weapons-grade plutonium a year. It's about the same size as the plutonium and, and same kind of heavy water reactors that um, North Korea used, that India used, um, that Israel used. Uh, there was a lot of debate about what to do about that reactor. Uh, what was agreed is that the core of the reactor is going to be taken out 
So it can't produce weapons-grade plutonium. That's better than I thought. I thought it was just going to be scaled back so it only could produce one kilogram a year of weapons-grade plutonium. But according to um, the, the parameters fact sheet, no weapons-grade plutonium at all. The fourth uh, potential path is the sneak-out path, doing it somewhere in a uh, clandestine facility. My interlocutor last night insisted that Iran had underground facilities that, uh, that they would be using to produce enriched uranium. I guess these are facilities that he knew about, but that the um, U.S. intelligence agencies and the other Western intelligence agencies don't know about. Um, yeah, it would be possible, conceivable, that Iran would be able to build a, a hidden facility somewhere and enrich uranium in it. But the degree of intrusive inspection that this deal uh, will have is greater than the IAEA employs anywhere else in the world. It's greater than has been employed anywhere except in Iraq, which was the case of a defeated nation. The IAEA will be watching the uranium from the time it is mined, milled, converted to gasified form, and enriched. They will have the right to ask to go to military sites now, there's some problem about that still to be uh, uh, clarified. On top of these intrusive IAEA inspections, every Western intelligence agency on the globe is looking intently at Iran's um, mining activity, at uh, large underground construction sites in Iran, anything that might be usable for enrichment. I'm sure that Western intelligence agencies are looking at it. So you don't have just the IEA, you've got redundancy of national intelligence means. So all four pathways are, are blocked. And these were key compromises by Iran, uh, allowing each of these. Um, my interlocutor insisted that the United States had made all the compromises at every stage, but clearly both sides made compromises. The day of the deal when I was uh, in Al Jazeera studio uh, providing my analysis, there was somebody else there with me, somebody who I had always known to be a, a hardliner on Iran, who didn't trust the negotiations. And his take was, this deal is terrible for Iran. He thought that Iran had given up uh, most of the uh, concessions. Actually, I think both sides did. But anyway, it was a real negotiation. Um, now. Iran insisted on not closing down any facilities. And, you know, that's unfortunate. It would have been much better if Fordo had been closed down. But we got the, we, the Western nations got the second best uh, deal that it can't be used to produce enriched uranium. Iran wanted to keep facilities open to save face. Partly because the Supreme Leader had said no facilities would be dismantled, and because um, maintaining dignity and pride means so much. And I think the fact that the Western negotiators knew that that was so important to Iran. That was the key to the deal, recognizing the importance of pride uh, as an objective of the other side in a negotiation. Both sides preserved leverage to enforce the agreement. Um, for Iran, having six or 5,000 or so centrifuges, more than they need, for civilian um, energy purposes now, is part of the leverage that they have. That having this many centrifuges allows them, if the West violates the deal, um, that they could go back into business producing 20% enriched uranium uh, that they could 
um, applied to weapons purposes. Um, and also the centrifuges that will be removed from Natanz, the 12 to 13,000 of them, um, they're going to be not destroyed, not dismantled, but kept in a facility somewhere. So that also gives them leverage if push comes to shove, they could uh, reinstall them. For the West, the architecture of sanctions will remain in place, most of the architecture. Uh, you know, there are three kinds of, three, three bodies that have imposed, three kinds of bodies that have imposed sanctions on Iran. Um, the United Nations uh, has imposed restrictions. The um, European Union has imposed very strict, uh, uh, serious sanctions. And then the United States, Canada, uh, and maybe one or two other countries have imposed uh, individual um, unilateral sanctions. The UN sanctions might not have the snapback measure that uh, is talked about. Snapback being that if Iran violates that, the UN sanctions would go right back into place. That's still to be uh, decided, what, what the UN um, follow-on resolution will look like. I'm a little worried that Russia and China won't allow snapback sanctions. But it doesn't matter so much because the sanctions that are most important to Iran, the sanctions that really have been applying the economic pressure, are the unilateral sanctions that the European Union and the United States and Canada have been applying. And those, you can bet, can be snapped back right away. I'm sure the U.S. Congress would be all too willing to put sanctions on in an hour's time, as long as it would take to get a roll call vote. You wouldn't even need a roll call vote. All in favor, you'd have everybody raising their hand. In the European Union, you need 26 countries to raise their hand. When I talk to all the diplomats here in town from those, I haven't talked to all 26 of them, but I'm assured that they will be ready to reimpose EU sanctions. And the way it, I think, will work is that, so the EU uh, Council of Ministers uh, makes, made a decision uh, to, to sanction Iran. And then there are regulations that are put in place to, that have been put in place to implement that. So the regulation will be uh, lifted, but the deciding uh, decision by the European Council will remain in place. So if there's any violation, you already have it in place, and then the, it's just the time it would take for the bureaucrats in Brussels to rewrite the regulation. So that's basically snapback. In other words, both sides preserve the leverage. What this deal basically does is it buys time. That's both bad and good. Buying time is usually the essence of diplomacy, putting off bad things in the hopes that circumstances will change. So they bought time, the deal will last for 15 years, maybe a little bit less, maybe, maybe a little bit more in some respects, and then some aspects of it will last more than 15 years. The industrial scale enrichment facility that Iran has been wanting to install at Natanz for the last 10 years they wanted to have 50,000 centrifuges of the first generation variety operating there. They want that to be in place in the next few years. Ayatollah Khamenei said last July, we've got to have 190,000 separative work units of enrichment output at Natanz in order to be able to replace the Russian-supplied uh, fuel when the current contract runs out in 2021. 190,000 Separative work units equates to about 120,000 first, first-generation centrifuges. That was, you know, when, when I heard that, I thought, okay, that's it. There can't be a deal. Demanding 
ten times as many centrifuges as were then in place back in July when he said that. I thought, no, there's no way. But what he said is, don't need it in the next year or in the next couple of years, need it in a few years. Well, Iran has now put that off to 18 years. They've, they've put it off. They bought, you know, so the West has bought time. Problem is, though, that after 18 years, what happens? The limits come off. And, you know, for a country, a nation of people with a 5,000-year history, waiting 18 years probably isn't that big of a burden. It would have been great to have limits that lasted 5,000 years from here on. But, you know, that just was not going to happen. That was not going to be... It wasn't going to be possible to get a deal with eternal limits. There had to be some cutoff. Uh, the West was seeking 20 years. They compromised and got 15. And then after 15, Iran can start using uh, more uh, high-advanced centrifuges. They can start installing more. So about year 18 or so, they could really have a, a large-scale uh, enrichment facility. And that is going to shrink the breakout time the breakout time that will be one year um, for the next 15 years uh, will get uh, smaller and smaller once Iran expands its centrifuges. And that's a problem. And that, I think, is probably the biggest reason why Israel, uh, in particular, is so upset about this deal. But, you know, thinking about this, 15 years, we'd be so lucky if we get that far, if this deal doesn't break down in 15 years. If, we, if it lasts for 15 years, that's 15 years of Iranian compliance with a deal. That will build some trust. And not just uh, trust in the you know, ephemeral sense, but, but trust that the IAEA will be able to draw a conclusion based on the implementation of the additional protocol that all nuclear activity in Iran is for peaceful purposes. It's, the, it's called the broader conclusion for any arms control wonks in the crowd. So we would have more confidence that Iran uh, wouldn't be um, using it for, for, for weapons uh, work. So um, this is a good deal, and I'm, I'm pretty confident that this deal is going to hold, I mean, that we're going to get a, a comprehensive deal this summer. Maybe not uh, by June 30th, the, uh, the deadline, but you know, in, in July at some point, I think we're going to see a deal. I'm saying 80% probability of a deal. The reason I'm not 100% confident is that there are about three different sets of actors who could uh, do something to, um, to query the deal. To query the deal. The first would be if the Iranian negotiators overplay their hand. If they think that Obama wants a deal more than they do, they'll they'll press for the advantage in little ways that then could maybe make it impossible to get a deal. When um, the Supreme Leader said uh, in uh, last month that uh, Iran would have to have all sanctions lifted on day one of the deal and that there could be no inspections at military sites, I thought, goodbye to the deal. If they hold to that, there can't be a deal. Uh, it, sanctions can't be lifted on day one. It's, it's physically impossible. And it ha they, there has to be some access to military sites. But as it turns out, most of what the Supreme Leader says you could interpret in a way that, you know, very creative interpretation uh, to make it uh, possible uh, to live with. Um, you know, for example, um, 
I'll get to that in a minute. Follow my outline here. The second way that a deal could come undone is if hardliners in Iran who don't want a deal take steps that would impede a deal. Now, they're not allowed to directly criticize the deal because the Supreme Leader has, has said so, but they can do other things that would uh, be a provocation to the West that would make it hard to go through with the deal. You know, they could seize a Washington Post reporter, for example. Well, actually, they did that already. Um, they could uh, seize uh, a cargo ship. Well, they did that already, too. Fortunately, those haven't impeded the deal yet, but that's the kind of thing that you could imagine they would do. And, you know, the, the minute that the news came out about the, um, the uh, Marisk Tigris being seized, the, my, my Twitter feed was full of, uh, of uh, <laughs> tweets by the, the opponents of the deal saying, see, you can't trust Iran. See, they've seized a U.S. ship. They were so disappointed when it turned out it wasn't a U.S. ship but it was, a, it was a Marshall Island ship for which the United States um, uh, has a defense obligation. So it's almost as good as a U.S. ship. So the, the Twitter um, uh, feed uh, lighted, uh, lit up again. That's the kind of thing, though, that I think we, you could see more uh, such troublemaking. And the third set of actors that could impede a deal would be uh, the people in Washington and maybe uh, one or two other countries that don't really want this deal some of them don't want any deal. When they say they don't want this deal, it's usually code for they don't want a deal, like my interlocutor last night. And so far, so good. The um, congressional legislation that has been proposed that could uh, uh, make Iran walk out of a deal uh, hasn't gone through. The um, Corker Amendment um, was handled brilliantly. It gave uh, congressional opponents of the deal in the United States something to vote uh, against, but but it would be very, very unlikely that they could muster the 67 votes that would be needed to overcome a, a Obama a presidential veto. And uh, that Corker bill was up for amendment uh, this week. Uh, yesterday, the uh, Senate Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell, wouldn't uh, put it to bed, and we all got worried, oh, no, he's going to allow some poison pill amendments to the bill. But I just heard a couple hours ago that that, that didn't happen, and now uh, the Corker bill is safe. So um, maybe, um, maybe I should raise my 80% to 82% now that the Corker bill is safe. The, um, there's still some remaining issues, though, that still need to be worked out. Um, the um, timing of sanctions relief, uh, what to do about the um, evidence of Iran's past um, nuclear activity of a possible military dimension, the PMD issue, and then how to um, arrange for access to military sites in the future. These are, these are tricky issues. They're not the biggest issues. I think the biggest issues were settled um, on April 2nd, but they're still difficult issues. You know, on sanctions relief, um, the United States' firm position is that they will lift, uh, suspend the measures on oil, banking, and trade when Iran implements its obligations. That is, when Iran... Um, removes 12,000 uh, centrifuges from Natanz, when they remove the core of the Iraq reactor, when they um, uh, start to implement the additional protocol. Um, I think that's all going to take uh, a while. Now, um, um, the United States says it'll take six months. Uh, Zarif, 
Foreign Minister Zarif said four weeks. We can do it in four weeks. Maybe eight weeks. Uh, I just don't know how. The only way you could you could do it in eight weeks would be if you took those twelve thousand centrifuges and when you take them out, you just rip them out, throw them in a box. You don't. But I don't think that's how Iran wants to do it. I think they want to very carefully take them out and put them over there very carefully so they could use them again, possibly. They're not going to just rip them out and throw them in a box. So I think, I think six months is, is a minimum. It could be more. And plus, it's going to be more than that because the Corker Bill, the, the downside of the Corker Bill is that it, um, it provides for a 30-day uh, period of congressional scrutiny. And the 30 days could be 60 days if the deal is not done on June 30th. So two, day, two, two months before implementation even starts, I don't think Iran's going to start implementation until they see that uh, U.S. actually um, gets over the Corker Bill hurdle. So we're not going to have a Christmas present of a, of a comprehensive deal. It'll be a, a, a no-ruse uh, uh, present maybe next year. The, um, so you know, back to the sanctions lifting. Um, U.S. says when Iran implements its uh, obligations, Iran says uh, day one of uh, of implement day one of the deal. Now I've talked to a couple Iranians, uh, Ali Baez from the International Crisis Group. He says it's the definition of day one that is the secret. You know, there's a way to there's a way to um, say that day one actually begins on the day that it's after after you do all the preparation work and then you actually you know the six months are over and then you actually start implementing. So he thinks it's not a problem. The um, the issue of the of the PMD is is a troublesome one because if you really um, if you really address the PMD issue these these various activities of a possible military dimension you basically would require Iran to admit to doing work uh, related to weaponization and that would seem to violate the Supreme Leader's fatwa um, fatwa against nuclear weapons so. I don't see how Iran can admit to violating the fatwa. You know, at best, they'll, they'll say those two guys, not you, but those two guys over there, um, they did it without authorization. It's this, you know, the tried and true method of Taiwan said that when they had a nuclear weapons program. The South Koreans said it, oh, those, you know, unauthorized work. Or, or, or maybe work that was done before the fatwa was uh, um, put in place in 2005. But, you know, some way it'll have to be fudged. Um, it can't be. It can't be just swept under the carpet entirely. However, and then the issue of, of access to military sites is a tricky issue because Khamenei said no access to military sites. But again, uh, that's going to have to be interpreted creatively. Maybe he meant no um, unrestricted access. That um, the IEA would have to ask permission, and then Iran. It would you know there'd be some kind of arbitration process. But, you know, the IEA has already visited military sites at least 12 times. Somebody told me once 23 times, but um, Ali Baez counted 12 times. So if Khamenei meant no access to sites that, haven't, that you haven't already um, had access to, well, they've already had access to military sites, so it's not a huge precedent that would be set. I think that could be overcome. The, um, the issue of access is very important, though. Um, and, you know, one of the biggest um, uh, complaints about the deal is that it'll be just like the North Korea deal in 1994 when the United States struck a deal with North Korea called the Agreed Framework, under which North Korea agreed to dismantle its plutonium production program and, uh, 
and uh, ship out of the country the, um, the plutonium that they had separated to date or the, the plutonium in fuel rods that they were waiting to separate. And 12 months after that North Korea deal, uh, North Korea tested a nuclear device. So when you think about an Iran deal that's going to last for 15 years and the North Korea deal fell apart in 12 years, well, okay, critics have a point there. My response would be a few, a few um, arguments. Oh, yeah, one, one of the uh, articles I read yesterday about you know, the North Korea deal, it's, it, it went through, and it was a good article, it, it went through all the reasons why the North Koreans were liars and cheaters and, and so forth. And it said, if Iran is like North Korea, they'll do the same. But Iran's not like North Korea. Iran has a fatwa. That, that, you know, North Korea has a constitutional amendment that says that they've got to have nuclear weapons. Iran has a fatwa that says they can't have nuclear weapons. Even if you don't agree with the fatwa, or it could change. Yes, it could change, but it means something. Iran has a, um, a, a, a nation of middle-class uh, aspirational consumers who want to be part of the international society, the international market. North Korea is a hermit kingdom with a middle class that could fit in this building. It's not the same kind of society. And, well, I mean, there are many other ways that North Korea is not like, uh, not like Iran. The other reason, though, I think that the deal is so different is that in the North Korean case, there wasn't a good enforcement mechanism. In Iran case, there are several enforcement mechanisms, including the snapback sanctions. But the key difference is that in the North Korean case, America's key ally in the region, South Korea, did not want the United States to use military force in the event of a violation. They didn't want a replay of the Korean War. So America was pretty much impeded from using military options. And you think about it, in the Iran case, America's allies, partners in the region, they have the exact opposite um, desire, that if it's violated, they want the United States to use military force. So this, the enforcement dynamics differ. There is one lesson about the North Korean case, though, that I think is pertinent. It's worth keeping in mind. A lot of us thought that when, if North Korea got nuclear weapons, it would create a proliferation cascade dynamic in Northeast Asia. I've been doing a lot of research on this because I'm writing a book um, about proliferation cascades in Northeast Asia. It didn't happen. It didn't happen. Nor you had a few more people in Japan talking about the possibility of a nuclear option. You had a few more in South Korea, more than in Japan, but still a minority talking about it. But the governments didn't change their position. The stock market in, in South Korea hardly um, changed after the North Korea test. It just wasn't the game-changing um, phenomenon that people uh, predicted. So will there be a uh, proliferation cascade in the Middle East? I would argue not. Not as a result of this deal anyway, which is one of the charges brought against the deal. Because Saudi Arabia in particular has said that they want any uh, any deal that, that Iran gets, they want to have the same uh, capabilities. So uh, Iran's got uh, allowed to have enrichment. The Saudis want enrichment too, goes the argument. And they've, they've made it pretty clear. My question would be, 
where are they going to get that enrichment technology? Saudi Arabia has a very fledgling nuclear, civilian nuclear industry. They don't have very many nuclear scientists or engineers. They don't have very many facilities. They're at a very um, rudimentary level, really. And for them to indigenously develop uranium enrichment would take 15 years, I would say. So the answer is, well, they wouldn't do it themselves. They just, they just get it from Pakistan or, you know, some other... They say Pakistan because for two reasons. One, every country that exports nuclear technology is part of the nuclear suppliers, that exports legitimately, is part of the nuclear suppliers group which has a rule about exporting enrichment technology to countries that might use it for weapons purposes. So, and, and all those countries have a good reason not to want to see Saudi Arabia have a nuclear weapons program. So they're not going to get it from Russia, not from you know, Germany or, or, or any of the nuclear suppliers group members. So that leaves two possibilities, North Korea or Pakistan. Now, North Korea is a real possibility. I worry about that. And it's why um, there already has been an intense concerted effort on the part of Western and governments and other countries to be on the watch for any possibility of North Korea selling uh, nuclear weapons related material or technology to any other country. There's something called the Proliferation Security Initiative, a group of 102 countries that have signed the principles that are working together to try to stop it. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure our, our intelligence agencies are on the case. But Pakistan, Pakistan, whose nuclear weapons program was funded by the Saudis over the course of a couple of decades, um, who have a very strong relationship with Saudis, and when the Saudis funded the program, there was some kind of a deal, apparently, that was struck, uh, according to legend and, and according to some evidence. What that deal consists of is nobody knows. I think it was a, a kind of a gentleman's handshake that, you know, if, if, if we need you, uh, you'll be there for us. Uh, we, you'll you'll um, give us a nuclear uh, option if we need it. It could be, have been nothing more specific than that. And the Saudis probably think that, uh, yes, Pakistan owes them nuclear technology and will be there. But that's not the way the Pakistanis see it. Thanks very much for your past assistance. Um, that was yesterday. Um, today, our strategic forces are all directed against India. An India that daily, daily is increasing its advantage over us. And we don't want to dilute our strategic focus to, to the West, to join a conflict between Pakistan and Saudi Arabia that would create trouble on our western border. It just is not in Pakistan's strategic interests. And the proof of this is when the Saudis asked Pakistan to contribute to the intervention in Yemen, to please send some troops and airplanes. Pakistan said, no, thank you. And by a, universe, by a um, consensus vote in the parliament, the Pakistani uh, parliament said, no, we're not going to do that. So I don't think they're going to send nuclear weapons if they won't even send a few aircraft. I don't think there's going to be a nuclear domino impact, especially if there is a deal. If there's not a deal, if there's not a deal and Iran races to get a breakout capability within weeks, expanding its enrichment facility and without the additional oversight of the deal, well then you know, then Pakistan um, might be 
or at least a couple Pakistani nuclear scientists might be persuaded to help uh, Saudi Arabia get a nuclear weapons uh, program in place. But with a deal, it's less likely. The last point I want points I want to talk about are the impact of a deal. Obviously, there's going to be a huge boost to the Iranian economy uh, when 80 billion to 100 and 40 billion dollars in frozen assets is lifted, that's going to be a huge influx to the economy. And um, apparently 30 to 50 billion dollars will be released um, immediately. So um, that's good for trade. That might, might not be so good for inflation in Iran, but overall it's probably not, not bad for the Iranian economy. What there won't be, though, is a lot of investment in the economy. You know, there's so many businesses that have been beating a path to Iran, to Tehran, to, uh, to get involved in talks and to talk about investment, but I don't think a one of them is going to strike an investment deal uh, when this um, comprehensive agreement is done until they see how it's implemented, that it won't break down, that there won't be a congressional uh, resolution um, imposing new sanctions, and until they see who's the next U.S. president and whether that president will honor Obama's deal. And I think, they, I think the U next U.S. president will, particularly if it's Hillary Clinton or Jeb Bush, some, you know, somebody with, a, with a, a bit of business sense who knows that if a deal has been operating uh, well for two years by that time, um, they shouldn't go back to square one and the conflict that could ensue by uh, imposing new sanctions and breaking the deal. But anyway, I think investors are going to be cautious and they're going to want to see who's the next U.S. president. So um, there won't be as great of a boost to the Iranian econ economy as, uh, as has had been uh, hoped for, but probably enough of a boost initially to give uh, Rouhani the, um, the lifting of the economic yoke that he really needs, that are the, the people's expectations uh, in Iran. In other ways, though, I think the domestic situation in Iran could actually get worse. You know, there's a, there's a hope that um, if Rouhani's position is strengthened, he'll be able to follow through on some of his other promises, on lifting some of the restrictions on human rights and so forth. But probably he won't be able to do that immediately. Probably the hardliners who control almost all the levers of power in Iran, all the security forces, the judiciary, the parliament, control over the media, all of those hardliners are probably going to want to crack down on human rights to show that Rouhani has not uh, uh, increased his power, to show that they still have leverage, and to keep control. So um, executions in Iran have already shown a spike, executions for drug trafficking. I think we could see uh, more um, violations of human rights. You know, um, uh, the former presidential candidates in Iran, Mousavi and Karoubi, won't be released from house arrest, as um, Rouhani um, has wanted to do. I'm afraid um, Jason Rezai and the Washington Post reporter is not going to be released um, uh, from prison, which I'm, I'm very sad about. Another uh, impact of the, the deal, I think eventually will be positive that getting over the nuclear impasse will enable the United States and the European countries to work with Iran on other issues of mutual interest. Issues like counter-narcotics uh, smuggling, 
um, issues involving um, Iran's huge water scarcity problem, uh, issues of a regional conflict where there are some mutual interests, although not totally overlapping. Um, all of there's a lot of areas for mutual um, um, identity of interests and working together <coughs> would open up, but probably. Most immediately, we're going to see more regional conflict. Again, because hardliners on both sides are going to want to show that this doesn't um, uh, mean that the moderates win. So already we've seen it, frankly. Um, Saudi Arabia's intervention in Yemen wasn't because of the deal. They had a real problem on their borders, and they wanted to push back, finally, in a place where they could push back against the the Shiite uh, rolling um, weight that they see uh, so many places. But the deal was, I think, a um, contributing factor uh, to, to Saudi Arabia's intervention. And I think it was a contributing factor to the additional arms that Iran tried to ship, um, apparently tried to uh, ship to uh, Yemen. Will there be um, detente between the West, between the United States in particular and Iran, I don't think there'll be detente. There, there will be um, some rapprochement, some um, talking. They will at least be communicating. You know, the fact that Secretary of State John Kerry and uh, Javad Zarif, the foreign minister, aren't just talking when they get to Geneva. They're calling each other up. They've got each other's cell phone numbers. They're texting each other. The communications are wide open now. And it used to be, you know, fatwa against that almost in Iran. Well, we, we've gone beyond that. So there's a real change in the environment. Communications are open. And I think this, this is all for the, the better. But the Supreme Leader doesn't want uh, normalization of relations with the United States. He doesn't want that. He wants a lifting of economic sanctions, but he's very suspicious of the United States. If he wanted... Relations improved with the United States, he'd release Jason Rezaian. But he doesn't and he won't. But Rouhani and Zarif do. They do want um, relations with the United States. And I think um, the deal that provides sanctions relief will strengthen them. And in the, the medium term, um, they will be able to do uh, more of the things that they want to do. And even Khamenei said in a speech on April 9th that if... Um, the deal holds, and if the other side honestly implements it, other issues could be discussed. So he is opening the door to, to potential discussion of, of other, uh, of other um, issues. Um, a fellow American um, uh, analyst and friend, uh, George Perkovich, described what's happening as not uh, uh, handshakes and so forth, but he said Iran and the United States will still be in conflict. But they'll be putting on gloves now. It won't be barehanded conflict. And you know, when you put on boxing gloves, it's really hard to pull triggers of guns. And I think this deal means that we won't have either of the two worst case outcomes of the Iran nuclear crisis. We won't have an Iran with a bomb, and we won't have an Iran bombed. And that's, uh, I think, in the end, uh, what makes this a good deal. My Twitter interlocutor last night, we ended, you know, he stopped uh, responding when I said, so what's your alternative? What's your alternative? Is war your best alternative? 
And actually, he used to work for somebody who thinks that. So um, I think that's why he didn't answer me. So I, thought, I, I, I think let's stop here and uh, entertain questions. Well, thank you very much, Mark. Expected a very detailed, very analytical, but surprisingly optimistic uh, uh, talk. Now we've got three quarters of an hour for questions and answers. Um, I put up your hands. I will recognise you. The mic will come to you, and then I ask three things of you. You say who you are, where you're from, and you ask a short question. Yes, you sir first. Yeah. Next one up. You second. Hello, my name is Simon Albert. I'm a member of the public. Um, every few years, it seems, there is some kind of large-scale military confrontation between Hezbollah in Lebanon and now on the Golan Heights and Israel. Even if there were to be a deal, and by accident and or by design, there were to be another such confrontation, how might that affect the various parties, including regional parties, keeping to the terms of this kind of deal. Yeah. Thank you, Mr. Albert. That's, that's, the, the Lebanon Hezbollah issue is one that I meant to say when I was talking about the potential for um, externalities um, interrupting this deal. Uh, you could imagine uh, a war erupting in, in Lebanon um, in the next two months, and that might very well uh, you know, turn people's attention in another direction. So far, the, the negotiators have kept exclusively to the nuclear deal. They've talked about Yemen on the sides and the coffee breaks maybe, but the, deal, the nuclear deal is the nuclear deal, and I think they will hold to that. But you're certainly um, right in pointing out that there are uh, issues that, that could uh, distract um, from the intentions here. Now, I don't think it would mean that uh, the United States would stop implementing uh, the deal but if it was a, um, if there was, say, uh, a shipload of munitions like the, uh, from Iran to uh, Hezbollah, like there has the Korean A, was it uh, in the past? You could imagine that that would upset members of the Congress to the extent that they might impose uh, new sanctions on Iran for that uh, reason. It wouldn't be nuclear sanctions, maybe. And then the question might be, would Iran? Um, be willing to accept the fact that this is not an increase in, in, in nuclear sanctions. I think um, both sides would be wise enough not to uh, let the deal be broken down because of that. And I think that Khamenei would be wise enough not to authorize a, uh, uh, an instigation of a war. Plus, I'm not sure even that Hezbollah marches entirely to Iran's uh, drumbeat. Uh, I mean, certainly uh, Iran cr created, funded, trains, supplies Hezbollah, but I, I, I'm not convinced that Hezbollah does exactly what Iran wants. So even if Iran were to say, start another war, not necessarily, but maybe some elements of Hezbollah would, and it would, uh, would escalate. That's certainly a potential. Thank you. Uh, extremely interesting analysis. I think I must congratulate you. Uh, the... United States has got a splendid opportunity in this uh, nuclear thing also to bring about a rapprochement uh, between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Uh, there is nothing so different except 
going back to 1400 years ago about division of Shia and Sunni. And Iran, uh, if you quote me if I'm wrong, in 5,000 years history has never invaded any country. And this opportunity for United States is, will bring about a great deal of amelioration in Middle East. Uh, and the fear will be allayed by the Gulf states as well, that if the Americans play a constructive role. I'm sorry, I didn't catch your name, sir. Abdul Rupani. I'm an alumni. Mr. Rupani, thank you. Um, my knowledge of Greek history isn't so great, but I, I think there might have been a, a time or two when Persians did invade other countries. But usually, usually what's stated is that the Islamic Republic of Iran has not invaded another country, or you could maybe even go back uh, uh, further, but 5,000 years, no. I, as an American, am so happy that you think that America would have the, the ability and the power to bring about rapprochement between these two <laughs> countries. Uh, would that would that that were possible? Um, I, I mean, I think the United States would like to see rapprochement between the United States and Iran, and and that is going to be hard enough as long as the supreme leader uh, is uh, um, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei. But it won't always be him, and uh, and uh, you know the next one maybe won't be as hardline, and maybe we'll allow rapprochement. And maybe, maybe this would uh, uh, enable further. But I think, th I think the, the, the most important point to get to the essence of your question is that there needs to be regional dialogue about issues that both um, separate and could possibly unite them. Dialogue about issues that um, both sides should really care about. Not, in the nuclear realm, the issue that I think is most uh, of concern to many in the Arab, uh, Gulf Arabs is nuclear safety, the potential for Bushir to have an accident or uh, other of Iran's um, desired nuclear facilities. Iran should sign the Nuclear Safety Convention, should have done it yesterday, they should do it tomorrow, and then they should, uh, they should invite uh, their neighbors to have inspection visits, to join peer reviews. This kind of practical, pragmatic uh, addressing uh, issues of real concern. And it's a concern to Iranians as well. You think the Iran's neighbors across the Gulf, Iran's people who live next door to Bushir should be concerned about nuclear safety. So that, I think, might be the most um, uh, the way to get to your point of uh, let's have dialogue, let's address issues, let's try to create an atmosphere of, of um, a forum. And I think that's something the United States could do. And May I make a, um, an advertisement about our, our institute? Our institute runs uh, the Manama Dialogue uh, every December, uh, going to be in November this year. And it, it's precisely aimed at creating this kind of a, of a dialogue among regional partners, regional players, and their external partners. I'll, I, I think I'll ask a question now. I think underpinning your analysis, and, and not explicitly, we've only had three quarters of an hour, not explicitly dealt with is what Iran wants, and much more specifically, what the Supreme Leader wants. And um, you talked about the trouble at the fatwa, but you also talked about evidence of nuclear, uh, the, the weaponization or the military uh, issues surrounding the nuclear program. And I think in, in previous work that you've written that what Iran probably was working their way towards is a breakout capacity. 
So I suppose my question is, is what Iran wants, has what Iran wants been changed by sanctions? Is that a permanent change or has the application of coercive diplomacy brought it to a compromise that it will, that it will seek to roll back from, I suppose is my question. Yeah, Toby, you, you, you put your finger on um, it and I'm glad somebody asked it, that um, I used to and I still would say that Iran has long wanted a nuclear weapons capability, uh, what you've described as a breakout capability, uh, ability to produce nuclear weapons. They've had that ability for several years now when they uh, learned, uh, mastered um, the techniques of uranium enrichment and they acquired uh, several thousand centrifuges. That gave them a basic nuclear weapons capability. It just was a matter of how long it would take to enrich enough for a nuclear weapon. Um, they have that capability in the deal, so they haven't forfeited a capability. And this, of course, is what uh, makes opponents of the deal angry, that any enrichment that gives them a capability, but it just was not in the cards uh, to remove that capability. There wasn't going to be a deal if that was going to be um, um, the absolute goal of the Western um, powers. But Iran, you're right, Iran then has another objective. It's to have a functioning economy, a growing economy, and a satisfied uh, uh, population. And most countries that have sought nuclear weapons also have that other ob objective. I've just been, my research on South Korea, this is why um, Park Chung-hee in the 1970s gave up his quest for nuclear weapons. It's because the United States threatened him with withdrawing support and with economic sanctions and stopping um, loans for um, their fledgling uh, civilian nuclear program. And he decided that economic development was more important than a nuclear weapons capability. Now, in Iran's case, I'm not sure that they would say economic development is more important than a capability. What they've decided to do is postpone the implementation of that capability for 18 years and meanwhile use the fruits of the uh, lifting of sanctions to improve the economy and then we'll see where we are in 18 years and maybe by then Iran's um, uh, determination to have that capability uh, will have changed because they've been more integrated into the international um, um, community of nations and, uh, and they see um, what uh, economic development uh, more can do and they don't want to change that. You know, often what, what, brings, what, what threatens regimes is not absolute poverty, it's, it's aspirations that have been stopped and I, I'm hoping and I think the, you know, the idea is that in 18 years that will stop Iran from employing the breakout capability. Thank you. Oh, yes, you, sir. And then you, Thank you. My name is Manu Cherutaki, and I'm independent consultant and Iranian based in London. I had a, you did mention relations, supposedly gentleman agreement between Pakistan and Saudi Arabia, the, the, the previous kings, that they would support the defense of Saudi Arabia and so on. I wonder if and you discounted, saying that this may have been a casual agreement, is not a, a deal, to now bring in, in seriously, Pakistan into uh, military activity. I wonder if you can expand a bit on that, because I have read so much about it. People say that it is there and so on. And then the new changes in the succession and so on within the Saudi Arabia. I wonder, of course, this is not subject of the talk here tonight, but the way uh, the it might have bearing on this, if you would wish to comment, I appreciate it very much. Yes, uh, uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Takin. I've also read so much about this. 
I've, I've tried to uh, get to the bottom of what was this deal between Saudi Arabia and Pakistan that we read so much about and so much circumstantial evidence, but, but what exactly was it? Um, at one point, Bruce Rydell, uh, an American uh, former CIA official who was in the White House at the time of the deal, he wrote an article a couple years ago saying that it was more detailed than just a gentleman's uh, uh, handshake, that it was uh, a promise to... Uh, and he didn't say what the details were, because I guess that was you know something he learned because of his government service and it was confidential, but it could be a couple of different things. It could be... Um, I mean, the worst option is Iran sends a nuclear weapon, gives it to Saudi Arabia. Highly unlikely. Another possibility, Iran um, sends... Uh, uh, a Pakistan. Pakistan sends uh, uh, a unit of, of, of uh, strategic uh, uh, forces uh, uh, personnel with a bomb, and they control it on the soil of Saudi Arabia, you know, something like the NATO stationing of tactical nuclear weapons in Europe. That's a possibility, but um, still, it's, uh, the, you know, the bomb leaves Pakistani soil, and they've done something that they've been trying for 10 years to, to get away from the onus of having supplied nuclear weapons technology via AQ Khan to three different countries, and now they're doing a, a nuclear weapon. It's, it's the last thing they want to do. Um, a third thing is that they could um, supply a nuclear umbrella, that if Pakistan is an extremist, that Pakistan would, would protect them, like the U.S. Um, assurances to NATO and Japan and South Korea. That's possible, but it, it breaks the strategic imperative Pakistan has to keep its forces concentrated against the real enemy uh, to the east. And the fourth possibility is that um, a few uh, Pakistani nuclear weapon scientists are lured uh, to Pakistan uh, and help get a head start. And that's the one that's the most likely. Pakistan says that's not going to happen because they have a, um, a program to follow all of their retired nuclear scientists to death to make sure that they don't go off uh, and, and sell their wares. And I'm assured, I was told 100% confidence by a, by a Pakistani uh, um, general last week that it couldn't happen, so I relay those assurances to you. <laughs> there you go. Uh, well, I'm Robert Hanna, alumni of this institution. Um, and what I want, you may probably know, it's a wonderful talk you gave, but um, a few, uh, before he died, the late Kenneth Waltz, I identified a few months ago, who a very um, significant figure in international relations here, he wrote an article, Foreign Affairs, you probably know about it, where he argued that it wouldn't be too bad if Iran does have nuclear weapons in terms of the overall objective reaching peace and civility in the Middle East. I, I mean, I, to me, you might know about this article, and if you... What do my view have of it? The late Kenneth Waltz. He did die a few months ago. You may have heard of him, Kenneth Waltz. Yes, of course. Yes, of course. Uh, Kenneth Waltz um, passed away a couple of years ago um, after an illustrious career uh, in which one of his um, um, seminal uh, works was that the more, you, I'll describe it as the more nuclear weapons, the merrier. That, um, that nuclear weapons um, um, uh, are, act as a mutual deterrent. Um, they've stopped uh, the United States and the Soviet Union from going to war in, in, um, in the days of the Cold War. And uh, if every country had them, uh, they would deter each other and everything would be peaceful. And 
um, the reductio ad absurdum of this um, theory is that Iran should also have nuclear weapons, um, which he wrote um, not long before he uh, passed away. When he wrote that article, it to me was the epitome of an ivory tower theory that has zero relevance in the real world. Zero relevance because in theory, nuclear weapons detour, but there are so many things that could go wrong. And you just have to know a little bit about the history of the United States nuclear weapons program or you know, read uh, Command and Control, the, the, the horrendously frightening uh, book by Eric Schlosser, to know how many things could go wrong, how many times they almost went wrong in the United States, which as an American I think has the best control over nuclear weapons, but boy, they screwed up a lot. And in, you know, nucle nuclear weapons deterrence is a very complex um, uh, set of operational uh, requirements and principles. And most people in the science world know that complex systems eventually malfunction. Deterrence eventually would malfunction. We've been lucky that in 70 years it hasn't gone completely, um, that it hasn't malfunctioned to that extent of having a nuclear weapon explode unintended. But the more countries that have nuclear weapons, the multiplication of the possibility of something going wrong, especially at the beginning when they're new to the field like the United States was for those times in the 50s and 60s uh, when things went wrong so many times. So I totally, wholeheartedly disagree with Kenneth Waltz. Hi, um, my name is Adrian, and I'm a postgrad student here um, at the LSE. And um, I have two questions, if that's okay. Um, the first is what you think the, um, I guess, which sanctions you think will be lifted after the UN ones first? Um, will it be the ones that were imposed by executive order in the U.S. or the EU ones or some other? Um, set of sanctions. And the second is um, related to Zarif's recent interview um, with David Ignatius at yeah. NYU. Um, and he referred to, he was talking about snapback sanctions, and he referred to um, how Iran also has a snapback capability. Um, and that was the first I heard of it. So I was wondering if you could elaborate on what that would be. Okay, thanks. Two good questions. So I, there's, you know, um, I talked about sanctions. Um, UN sanctions, US sanctions, EU sanctions, and of course within each of those sets there are various kinds of sanctions. I think um, what we've already heard from the United States is that immediately about 30 to 50 billion dollars of frozen Iranian assets are going to be lifted. That's described as a gift to Iran, but it's actually their assets that have been frozen, so it's not exactly a gift. Um, and, uh, and that's something that could happen pretty quickly. That might even be the very first uh, sanctions that's lifted. Then um, the UN resolution, uh, the, the resolutions that um, impose restrictions on Iran will be uh, replaced by a, a replacement resolution, which is being um, negotiated now. I think that's one of the issues uh, the parties are negotiating. And that could be put in place pretty quickly. Um, that won't lift all UN um, measures measures that are not in the nuclear realm, like um, um, sanctions on, on, on small arms and so forth, that will probably remain in place. Um, 
at least until um, Iran implements um, fully the measures and um, allows the IAEA to um, be able to draw the broader conclusion that all nuclear activity is for peaceful purposes. I think the UN will retain some, some um, leverage there. The EU sanctions, um, some of them could come off quickly, but um, some of them will take some, some time to, uh, to implement. Uh, oil uh, um, oil uh, purchase uh, prohibition, that could be lifted rather quickly, but actually implementation might, may take some time. Um, the um, ban on Iranian use of swift um, com communications will, will probably be lifted, but it might not actually um, be able to be implemented because the United States law uh, prohibits countries from using SWIFT. So that has to be lifted as well. Um, so the interplay between EU and, and, and U.S. sanctions um, is, is delicate. And U.S. sanctions are the most complicated of all. As you know, there are the sanctions that were imposed by the executive um, uh, branch by means of executive orders. Um, there are the sanctions imposed by the Congress. The latter are never... The latter may be impossible to lift, but someday they're supposed to be. Um, and in the meantime, uh, what Iran has said is that it's the implementation of sanctions that will be lifted, so they're not demanding that sanctions be removed entirely. But uh, I, I talk sometimes with people in the U.S. Treasury about this matrix of U.S. sanctions that is so complicated to even explain, and undoing it is going to take some time. Um, but, you know, the, the key, I think, is to give Iran an immediate injection of, of, of cash that... Rouhani can say, we, we, we did what we promised to do. Second point, ah, Zarif's uh, interview with Ignatius, um, snapback capability. Well, this is the leverage I was talking about. Iran retains 6,000 centrifuges, not because they need them for civilian purposes, but because if, if uh, the other side broke the deal, they could uh, ramp up enrichment, go back to producing 20% enriched uranium, um, which they stopped when the interim deal was first in place. And the those um, those centrifuges, which um, if you threw them in a box, you could probably you know wouldn't take more than four weeks. But anyway, they could they're not going to be in a box. They're going to be carefully stored. They could be put back in place. That's what I think Zarif is talking about. But he's not. He doesn't want to say so directly because he's Iranian. He's more subtle than is Tom Cotton. <laughs> Um, Ali Reza, former IR student at LSC, thank you very much for your insightful speech. I've got two questions, if I may ask. One about PMD, which the possible military dimensions, Zarif and, fifth, and uh, Iranian TV alluded that if they're rebranded as PPI past and present issues, Iran is willing to discuss them. Would rebranding PMDs as PPIs be a feasible way to have a dignified deal for Iran, or as Zarif says, a win-win deal? And the second question is that, uh, the fact sheet and also the statement that Zarif and the EU representative read talked about secondary U.S. sanctions related to nuclear activities. These are not related to the sanctions passed because of human rights, sponsor of terrorism, or the sanctions post-1979 and 1990s, 1995, namely the Damato Act. What would happen to those sanctions and the possibility of U.S. firms going into Iran? Those are not affected by the deal. So what's the excitement of U.S. deals about going to Iran now? Okay, so um, the first question, um, Ali, was um, could you rebrand um, a PMD? That sounds like an elegant uh, uh, solution that would help um, get over uh, 
you know, a face-saving uh, problem for Iran. But I don't think it's the, you know, that's not the only part of it. Um, Iran will have to allow some access to sites and individuals uh, that uh, are caught up in the evidence about activities of a possible military dimension, or let's call them PPI. Um, uh, and, and how uh, Iran uh, allows this access it'd be kind of tricky. You know, they, they haven't wanted to allow Fakhrizadeh to be interviewed. Um, I think the, the answer will be you let Fakhrizadeh be interviewed, but you can't force him to say, you know, things. So um, he'll probably be interviewed and won't, won't provide any, um, any good answers, but that might, that might be the way it's handled. On other U.S. sanctions in the human rights area and other um, – and, and sanctions because of Iran's support for uh, international terrorism – those sanctions will remain in place. They're not going to be lifted. But those sanctions don't impose the kind of economic um, uh, restrictions that the nuclear sanctions impose. You know, the, the secondary measures, I mean, you, you said secondary measures. Most of the secondary measures, as I understand secondary measures, are the extraterritorial measures that sanction um, countries in Europe if they um, do trade uh, with Iran in certain fields. That's for nuclear, and that'll be lifted. Okay, let's take a final round. Whatever, something everyone wants to ask a question. We'll, we'll start here, and then there's a question in the middle there, and then the final. We'll take you all together, and then Mark. Okay, okay. Hi, I'm Michael. I'm a MSc student here at the LSC. Thank you so much for coming. Um, I was just wondering how much of the strategic consideration of the Americans is related to the um, coming election of the assembly of experts um, who will then probably pick the next supreme leader um, since the, uh, they usually have eight year terms I, be I believe and if you if the moderate if this, the hands of the moderates are strengthened maybe having a more moderate uh, moderate assembly of experts and then hopefully maybe a more moderate supreme leader um, and I was just wondering what your thoughts on that were okay yeah. oh. So my name is Irena. I'm a student here at the LSE. My, I have a very similar question, just less optimistic. Do you think that the, the deal will be honored by Iran if the hardliners actually are strengthened, especially in the short term, because that's what you actually predicted? So do you think that actually they may, they may react negatively against the agreement? And finally, yeah, right at the back. Oh, hi, my name is Mick. I'm, former, uh, I'm a LSE alumnus. And I would like to ask you, perhaps you've heard about a book uh, by Gareth, Gareth Porter, Manufacture Crisis, and his argument that it's not actually Iran, but uh, the US and Israel that uh, constitute a problem. Would you be able to comment on um, uh, Mr. Porter's <coughs> argument? Um, my second question, uh, it's very quick, um, about Saudi Arabia and um, Pakistan. Um, Iran uh, re received, uh, as far as I remember, the, uh, the enrichment um, technology from informal network from Pakistan. And how do you propose that Pakistan controls if that already had happened in the past? Thank you very much. Um, what do you think is um, 
the impact on U.S. and Iran negotiations um, by, because of um, sort of the ties between U.S. and Israel? How do you think that has impacted U.S. and Iran negotiations? Okay, in your name, please. My name is Dwayne. Dwayne. Yeah. Anyone else before we close questions? <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> Sorry. Um, well, um, I think. Um, well, the, one of the first uh, nuclear physicists uh, who uh, uh, in Iran actually got his PhD from uh, Caltech back in the 1930s, and then we have, you know, a lot of um, Iranian scientists and scholars. And you were talking about building that trust between uh, the U.S. and uh, Iranian, and you know, not just from the political front, but you know, there's long been scholarly exchanges. So, would would that be a possible revenue for for the two countries to further strengthen trust and you know? Could the scientists, or are they more of a hindrance, or are they an aid to uh, to U.S. negotiations with with Iran? And your name? Oh, sorry, I'm Judy, and I am a student at the LSE. Okay. Okay. Um, well, the first question is the uh, the assembly of experts. Is the U.S. Yeah. Field? Yeah. So um, it's it's. <laughs> I love talking to a group where people, some people really know a lot, and. Uh, um, Election considerations have been important uh, to these negotiations on both sides. Uh, you know, one reason that um, it's, it's important not to keep prolonging uh, uh, negotiations is that it gets into U.S. Uh, election season and it becomes harder politically. And I imagine that there's some considerations um, on the side of Iran that um, a deal that strengthens Rouhani um, has the uh, positive uh, uh, repercussions that you uh, mentioned, and it's precisely why some of the hardliners don't want uh, this deal to succeed. Was that um, a, um, a key factor in the U.S. negotiating strategy? I've never heard it said that that's the case. Um, it, it may have been, but it's, it's not something that, uh, that, and I do a lot of exploration of this topic, so... Um, maybe it was something in the back of their minds, but I, I don't think it was. It was, it was a, a very, very large of a factor. It's something they would be happy if it, if, you know, a, a positive externality, but not a factor that drove their negotiation strategy. The um, uh, question that Irena asked: um, Will a deal be honored if hardliners are strengthened? Um, a deal will be honored as long as Hamenei wants it to be honored. Uh, and he wants um, the sanctions uh, lifted. Now, I guess one could make um, an argument that once Iran gets upfront sanctions relief, that uh, that he'll get what he needs sufficient, and that then he could he could break the deal. Uh, but then snapback sanctions come back in place, and now with vengeance, if Iran were to break the deal in a way that shows they're going for nuclear weapons, so. Um, I, my, my read of Hamenei is that he's not that courageous to do that. He's a man who, he, you know, he's, he's, he's not the guy who dictates uh, what's happening. It, he, it, Iran runs by kind of a consensus of the elite, and he helps to shape that, but eventually he reflects it. And I don't see the elite uh, being able to make such a dramatic uh, shift of, of, uh, of decision. Even if the hardliners are strengthened, 
the, the Rouhani Zarif supporters are still going to be part of the elite. They're not going away. And they would prevent a, a consensus around breaking the deal. Um, Mick, you asked about Gareth Porter's book. Um, we're on record, so I won't tell you what I think. <laughs> but um, sometimes it's possible for people to write whole books with lots of interesting information, much of which is plausible and maybe even true, but it's cherry-picking of information. I think that's what Mr. Porter has done in his book. I'm not going to debate with you now all the reasons I disagree with his contention, but I'll tell you that I disagree wholeheartedly with his contention, that, uh, that it was all a made-up um, accusations against Iran, they never did anything wrong, and the big bad United States and Israel are all to blame. Um, I'll leave it at that. Uh, Dwey, um, <laughs> the impact of, uh, of Israel on, um, sorry, yeah. Yeah. the impact of Israel on, on the, um, on the, the impact of a deal on Israel. US. I thought it was the impact of Israel on the U.S.-Iran relations. Which was it? Okay, good. That was right. You've got to listen carefully. Israel has already had an impact on the, re, on the, uh, on the deal. Um, they've, they've helped to shape the deal by setting out maximalist demands about what the deal had to have. And um, it wasn't all met, but some of it was met. Um, you know, uh, Netanyahu's speech to the General Assembly um, uh, two and a half years ago when he had that crazy bomb and uh, <laughs> said that uh, uh, Iran couldn't have 20% enriched uranium. Well, Iran doesn't have any 20% enriched um, uranium in gasified form today. So um, I think Iran, uh, Israel's maximalist positions have, have done what they intended them to do, which was to get the strongest deal possible. Um, it didn't go, the deal is not as strong as Israel would have wanted, um, however. And I think Israel overplayed its hand in a, in a way that was counterproductive to their national interests. When Netanyahu took up an invitation to address the joint um, houses of U.S. Congress without first uh, checking with the White House and without checking with the Democratic uh, side of, of, the, um, of the aisle, he antagonized the White House to the extent that uh, they no longer listened uh, to what Netanyahu wanted. And yeah, the one in March. Okay, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I think that now some people say that um, Obama is so angry at Netanyahu that that whatever Netanyahu wants, uh, he'll do the opposite. Well, you know that is not the way it works. He's not. He's not um, that. Um, uh, we're not in grade school. Um, okay, Judy, you asked about uh, scholarly exchanges. I, I think these kind of exchanges can certainly be helpful. Uh, to, um, to developing trust, but it's, it's, um, sometimes people place an overemphasis and think that, well, if only scientists could get together, they would, you know, they would solve things, and I think that's just a bit naive. Uh, I, I, I was in meetings between Iranian and, um, and, and American political scientists and, um, 
and uh, people like me in think tanks who were promoting just such a deal. And they said, let's just bring scientists together and then they'll have peer reviews and they'll visit each other's nuclear facilities and they'll be able to declare that everything is fine. And, um, well, you need... I would put more trust in the IAEA visiting all those facilities and saying everything is fine. And then scientist, scientist exchanges um, on top of that uh, could, be, could be okay. I just, I just uh, you know, am, am cognizant of, of times. Occasionally you'll have a scientist exchange that goes wrong. You know, a, a Chinese um, nuclear scientist will visit a, a U.S. Uh, laboratory in New Mexico and uh, turns out that um, he's not just a scientist. Um, uh, works for another part of the Chinese government, so you, you, you have to be wary of that kind of thing. But but overall, I, you know, I think more exchanges the better. Not just scientists; there should be many exchanges between uh, peoples to, to 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 reinforce the Iranian desire desire on the part of so many Iranians to be part of the international community. I think that's a very strong um, incentive for them to maintain this deal. And I'll stop there. A positive note. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. Uh... Um, the next Middle East Centre lecture is on Tuesday the 19th of May and it's Frederick Valerie uh, at the University of Rotterdam to discuss the 2001 uprisings in Morocco and how they differed from the rest of uprisings across the region. Thank you very much and we'll see you next year.